This is Fresh Air. I'm David Biancooley, sitting in for Terry Gross. Today's guest, Grammy Award-winning songwriter, singer, and guitarist Brandi Carlisle, is poised to win more Grammys when winners are announced in February. Last week, she was nominated for seven. Her album, In These Silent Days, is up for Album of the Year, and she received a Record of the Year nomination for her song, You and Me on the Rock. Terry interviewed Brandi Carlisle last year about her memoir, Broken Horses, which reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It gets off to a dramatic start, with her near death from meningococcal meningitis at the age of four. She had tough times growing up, periods of poverty and moving around a lot with her family. Her father drank too much, and she was bullied and was a bully in school. She felt like a misfit, but things got better. She realized she was gay, she found women she loved, and she fulfilled her childhood dream of becoming a successful singer and songwriter. She met the Hanseroff twins, Tim and Phil, and they formed a band that has stuck together. Carlisle also is a part of the group The High Women, along with Amanda Shires, Maren Morris, and Natalie Hemby. Carlisle and her wife, Catherine, have two daughters and live on a compound in the state of Washington with the Hanseroff twins and their children. Phil is married to Carlisle's younger sister, Tiffany, and Tim is married to Catherine's sister. Let's start with Brandy Carlisle's song, The Joke, which won two Grammys in 2019. You're feeling nervous, aren't you, boy? With your quiet voice and impeccable style Don't ever let them steal your joy And your gentle ways To keep them from running wild They can kick dirt in your face Dress you down and tell you That your place is in the middle When they hate the way you shine I see you tugging on your shirt Trying to hide inside of it Hide how much it hurts Let them live while they can Let them spin Let them scatter in the wind I have been to the movies I've seen hands And the jokes Brandi Carlisle, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you. That song is kind of about, you know, being a misfit, being excluded because of who you are, being seen as less than. Um, So I think your book starts with a reason you might have felt like a misfit right from the start of your life. And that's what I referred to before, getting meningitis when you were four and um, nearly dying, being in a coma and flatlining several times while you were in the coma. Doctors weren't sure you'd pull through. When you think about that moment, <laughs> that that period, and I, I know your memories of it, I'm sure you don't really remember being in a coma, but when you think about when you learned that you were in that world between life and death, what do you think about? 
I think I have really detailed abstract memories of that time. And um, I remember really specific things, kid things that you, that, you know, that you'd think a kid would remember, like, you know, what kind of toys I was given and, you know, what kind of food I ate and certain interactions with certain adults. But a lot of it is just based on what I've been told um, throughout my life and then a way that I felt when I came out of that, which is that I felt a little bit too in tune with how adults feel and, and how adults walk through the world as opposed to how a child thinks adults walk through the world. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that the, the, the fallibility that gets exposed when you realize that your parents don't have any control over whether or not you live or die is not sup- something you're supposed to really realize, I think, until you get a lot older. So from the get, I, I had that realization because I, you know, I saw my parents react understandably to me being a sick kid. I saw parents that thought they were going to lose their child and that those parents, they cry and they, and they react. And it's scary because you, you sort of need to see, I think your parents as these kind of pillars and, and protectors. And, and that was a glimpse that I got into the fact that that might not be so. And, uh, it had a lasting impact. Did you grow up afraid of death and that it could take you at any moment? Yeah, kind of. But I did believe that there were mystical reasons why it didn't. It was kind of part of my narrative. Yeah, your family thought that you survived because God had a plan for you. Did it give you a sense of faith in God that you maybe wouldn't have had otherwise? It did. It gave me a sense of um, of faith in God that's unshakable by, uh, you know, the whims of culture, by politics, by people. Or by organized religion. (laughs) Or by organized religion. By church specifically, yeah, exactly. So you knew when you were a child that you wanted to sing. And when you went with your mother to, you know, the regional Opry where she was auditioning, you saw a nine-year-old sing, and you thought, if she can do it when she's nine, I could do it when I'm nine. I don't have to wait till I'm an adult. And you started singing and auditioning when you were a child as a result of that. Did you start to feel at that point like, maybe that was the special thing that God had singled you out for? Um, I don't think I drew that conclusion right away, but the epiphany of realizing that 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 was something I didn't have to wait to start is like, you know, what do you get asked as a kid all the time by adults? Like, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? And it never occurred to me that music wasn't something I had to wait to grow up to do until I saw Amber Lee strut her stuff out on that stage, stage and sing Dolly, I realized that, yeah, I can, I can get this going right now. And, um, and I did. And that was mystical in its own sense without me having to draw a correlation to my childhood illness. It took a long time for me to be able to do that, probably up until my 30s. You wanted songs that belonged to you even when you were a child, and you didn't know how to find a songwriter. So you thought, well, maybe I'll write some songs myself. Do you remember the first song that you wrote? Yes, I do remember the first song that I wrote. I had just gotten the opportunity to open for the country singer Shelley West. And at the end of it, I remember just being manic, like high as a kite, because I had just played this tremendous show and the audience reacted really explosively. And I was so excited about it. And I remember telling my mom that uh, the difference between me and Shelley West was like almost nothing and that it was going to take almost nothing for me to just be a gigantic country star. <laughs> <laughs> like 10 or something. And 
she like leaned down to me and said something about how she just met a composer and he had two originals that he wanted her to sing. And um, I was never competitive with my mother or anything, but I, I remember that that was the worst news because it occurred to me there was a thing called an original. And that if you don't have an original, you're just acting. You're just singing other people's songs. And I was obsessed at that point with having a song that was written for me. And uh, when I realized that I was 10 and wasn't going to have access to that, uh, I wrote one. <laughs> it's called, and it was called Ride On Out. It was about, you know, riding on out into the sunset. Can you sing a few bars of it? Yeah, it was like, I'm going to ride on out. I'm going to hit the road. I'm going to take to the trails with a speedy mode. Leave you behind in a dusty cloud. Sing nature's song both quiet and loud. And when the sun sinks behind the mountains high, I'll sing my sad songs beneath the purple sky and fall asleep inside my saddle deep. I wake on up to the morning sweet. I'm going to ride on out. I'm going to hit the road. And that was it. <laughs> what were you thinking about? What, what, what was the story in your mind that accompanied the lyric? I was thinking about cowboys or cowgirls riding through the desert on horseback and falling asleep next to a campfire in their saddles and, you know, picking on acoustic guitars and, and uh, spending the days with the tumbleweeds and the night with the stars and the coyotes. And I just had this imagery in my mind of leaving and just taking my music and going. Well, that's great. Well, thank you for thank you for singing that for for us. Your friend Amber, who loved to sing, started singing with you, and her father was an Elvis impersonator. So you and she became his backup singers and had to learn the parts of the Jordanaires, who sang backup for Elvis Presley. What did you get out of studying Elvis recordings and the Jordanaires harmonies? Well, I mean, that is not a bad education. It was like. It was a lesson in pitch. It was a lesson in delivery. It was a lesson in blend, but also counter melodies. The fact that the harmonies didn't happen at the same time the lead vocals happened, the fact that they were in rhythm, that you could hear snaps and movement and feet stomping. They were just musical bodies. They were the greatest probably that's ever been. So um, I came out of the gate with really high expectations for background vocals in particular. And... To be honest, I also learned a hell of a lot by watching people react to Elvis's moves, even if it was on a impersonator. It was pretty interesting education to be on the backside of the stage looking at audience faces, which is where I've actually learned a lot in my life. What did you learn from watching the audience? I learned the things that they react to, how a smile is contagious. Uh, I learned about comedic timing. I learned about sort of like physical communication, especially because Elvis was such a physical communicator with the audience. And I remembered thinking, standing back there in my poodle skirt going, you know, actually, I want to be that dude. <laughs> <laughs> and was, was that the, the black leather dude or the white suit dude? Both. You name it. <laughs> you name it. <laughs> so you write in your memoir, this is referring to your period when you were in school, and you dropped out when you were a sophomore in high school. You wrote, my need to be perceived as confident and strong was starting to consume me. This period is, to say the least, a fragile time in any child's life. Gender dysphoria, as I understand it now, is a natural concept during adolescence, but I had no language for it. Would you describe what you were experiencing? 
It's abstract, but I think I was experiencing, um, you know, the beginnings of puberty and not really understanding how to be in my body. I think that's a pretty common adolescent experience just in, just in general. But I didn't know any gay people and I lived in a really small town and I didn't know how to call what I was feeling. And so I think that I developed kind of a, a style of interacting with people that was in, in character, like a persona. And um, I remember just trying to feel and appear really strong and confident and charismatic when that's obviously the opposite of how I felt inside. I don't know if this song exactly fits here, but I want to play it. Um, and the song is called That Wasn't Me. And you describe it in your memoir as, um, as a song that's your deepest healing song. I'd like to, before we hear it, I'd like to know what you mean by that. Well, I think that I wrote that song about my father's um, addiction and recovery. And this is addiction to alcohol. Addiction to alcohol and recovery. And, you know, I grew up in Al-Anon, Alatine, and, um, you know, I was sort of steeped in AA philosophy and and um, that kind of language and that sort of understanding. And when my dad finally did get sober as, as I was an adult, I wrote that song kind of like from his perspective or maybe what I felt like in some ways I needed him to say or what I knew that he would say if he could. So that's what that song's about for me. So I, I like this a lot. So let, let, let's hear it. This is Brandy Carlisle. That wasn't me from her 2012 album, Bear Creek. Hang on, just hang on for a minute. I've got something to say. I'm not asking you to move on or forget it, but these are better days. To be wrong all along and admit it is not amazing grace. But to be loved like a song you remember Even when you've changed Tell me Did I go on a tangent? Did I let it through my teeth? Did I cause you to stumble on your feet? Did I bring shame on my family? Whatever you see, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. Oh, that wasn't me. So that was my guest, Brandy Carlisle, her song, That Wasn't Me. Your parents didn't go to church much, but you did. We talked a little bit earlier about feeling that, you know, God had a plan for you, and that's why you were spared from death when you were four and had meningitis. But, you know, the church you went to is pretty hostile to homosexuality. How did you reconcile that when you started to figure out that you were gay and that the church was not going to approve of that? Well, to be honest with you, I don't know why I overlooked it. I think that 
I've always just felt that even if the culture or the environment of where I'm at isn't where where I'm physically at, isn't where I'm at emotionally or spiritually in my life, that just my by my being there, I can affect it positively or pull it forward. You know, it's another way of saying that like wherever you stand out the most might be where you're most needed. And I remember knowing that the church I was going to at the time with my brother felt that way and had those tenets and, and, and uh, principles, but it didn't discourage me from going there. I think I thought I could reconcile it somehow or even improve the church culture or the church environment by standing in contrast to what they were saying and what they were believing. But that wasn't the case. And, you know, that was just me not realizing that people don't change unless they want to. Yeah. Well, you weren't able to be baptized. How were you told that you weren't going to be baptized? Well, you know, I mean, anybody that that was raised Southern Baptist or has been a Baptist at times, they know about the kind of process of, of baptism and they know about public accountability. And there's a lot of like, everyone close your eyes and come forward if you, uh, if you want to give your life to the Lord or you want to declare that it's your time to be baptized. And those kinds of things happen a lot. And there's a lot of these kind of audience-based testimonials and, and, and declarations. And I always kind of avoided those things for obvious reasons. But, you know, one day I didn't and I felt compelled. I felt like I wanted to be baptized. And looking back on it, I can see that it's that I wanted acceptance in a broader sense. My being gay never came up, although it was well known. I used to come to church with my girlfriend sometimes. And, you know, I had like two inches of hair on top of my head and I declared that I was never going to eat meat again. And uh, <laughs> I was kind of, I was doing the things I thought I was supposed to do. And, um, but on the day of my baptism where my friends and family had all been invited to the church to see this go down, um, I got there and was taken aside and told that, you know, unless I declared that I intended to no longer be gay that I couldn't be baptized that day. And um, it, it just came as such a shock. And it was that kind of deep public humiliation stuff that I was always afraid of, you know? And, and that's, what that, that's what that whole thing was about, trying to feel confident and strong and brazen. Um, was about trying to avoid those moments. And then it happened. And it was a, it was a big shift in my life, spiritually and musically and emotionally. What was the shift spiritually? Well, it made me rethink where God was. You know, was God in this church? Was God in these people? Was God in these displays of piety? Like this grandstanding of baptism and these testimonials? Or was God maybe in places I'd yet to go? Like in, in music or outside of my town, on, out on the road, you know, out of my house. And I had, at that point, never even been on an airplane before. So it's when I knew that it was time for me to seek beyond my station. Today's guest is singer and songwriter Brandy Carlisle. Her memoir, called Broken Horses, was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Here's a song from her latest album, In These Silent Days, which received an Album of the Year Grammy nomination last week. It's one of seven Grammy nominations which went to Brandy Carlisle. This is Fresh Air.
Let's get back to Terry's interview with singer, songwriter, and guitarist Brandi Carlisle. She's won five Grammys to date, and last week was nominated for seven more, including Album of the Year and Record of the Year. In addition to fronting her own band, she's part of the country group The High Women, along with Amanda Shires, Maren Morris, and Natalie Hemby. Terry interviewed Brandi Carlisle last year after the publication of her best-selling memoir, Broken Horses. You left high school when you were a sophomore, and your younger brother, who's just about a year younger than you, left at the same time. Did that have anything to do with not getting baptized? I'm not sure of the chronology. No, uh-uh. I think that it had, it was that there were a lot of reasons for it at that time, and it wasn't clear to me then, but when I look back on it now, you know, I see why it happened. Which is? Well, I just felt that what I was going to do, I didn't have to wait to start. And uh, that's not to say that I don't have any regrets or that it wasn't a really, um, that it didn't lay a burden on my shoulders because it did and it has for years. And actually this, writing this book has done more for me, um, reconciling my lack of an education than anything ever has. But at the time we were moving a lot our dad was the sickest he'd ever been in, in his alcoholism. We were both failing every class. I was in special education classes. Jay's anxiety was out of control. And I was out of, out of the closet at school. And that was a big deal. That's a really big deal to be like 14 and out of the closet in a small town. I was the only gay person. And just as I started 10th grade, we had one of our moves had led us into an address change that would have put me in a whole new school district for the first time, you know, in a long time. And I was like, I can't do this again. I cannot come out of the closet in a new place. And I'm so behind. I just want to be in my band and I just can't show up here anymore. And so we dropped out of school on the same day at the same time and continued our parents' legacy of dropping out of school. And uh, it was not a beautiful <laughs> moment in our adolescence. Did that open the door to doing more music? It did after a minute. I think for a minute we were in grief about it without really knowing that that's what it was. I remember my brother and I went to a yard sale and we picked up a big old box of unlabeled VCR tapes. And um, we just laid in bed for months and watched mystery movies and didn't talk. We didn't talk about it. We didn't talk to our parents. We were just total losers. And um, when we came out of it, we came out of the gate really recommitted to and solidified in our music and in our band. But we did have a grief period where we realized that we were, um, we were those kids that had dropped out of school really young. Well, you've had several turning points in your music life, but one important and lasting one was meeting the Hanseroth twins, Phil and Tim. And they play guitar and other instruments and sing harmony, write or co-write songs for your band. Did you realize it was a turning point when you started playing with them? It would be really hard to meet the twins and, and not see a turning point in them. They have charisma and a work ethic and a magicalness that is just instantly apparent to anyone that, that meets them. They're really spectacularly talented, and they've got a mountain of positivity. You just cannot have a bad day with the twins. And you can't write a bad song. 
I want to play a track in which the three of you harmonize together. It's called The Eye. It's from your 2015 album, The Fire Watcher's Daughter. And um, do you want to say anything about recording this? It's just really beautiful. Oh, thank you. Well, we recorded this with uh, Trina Shoemaker on um, on our album, Fire Watcher's Daughter. And we all stood around in our configuration, which is like three microphones in inter- intertwined stands that face each other and um, bring our faces uncomfortably close to one another to where it's very important that we've all had a mint that day. And we just sing three-part <laughs> harmony at the same time. And um, something, the tension between the three of us keeps us all in sync. And uh, that's how we record three-part harmony on everything. But on this song in particular, it's a little extra special because the three-part harmony is what makes the three of us what we are. And this is the first time we decided to really do it front and center for a whole song. So let's hear it. This is my guest, Brandy Carlisle, and the Hands Are Off twins. And this is The Eye. It really breaks my heart to see a dear old friend go down in the worn out place again. Do you know the sound of a closing door? Have you heard that sound somewhere before? Do you wonder if she knows you anymore? I wrapped your love around me like a chain But I never was afraid that it would die You can dance in a hurricane But only if you're standing in the eye Where did you learn to walk? Where did you learn to run? Away from everything you love. And did you think the bottle would ever ease your pain? Did you think that love's a foolish game? Did you find someone else to take the blame? That was The Eye from Brandy Carlisle's album Fire Watch's Daughter, and we heard her singing Harmony with Tim and Phil Hanseroth, the Hanseroth twins, and they've been together as a band since what year? I mean, probably 2000, 2001, somewhere around there, yeah. Well, let me reintroduce you here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Brandy Carlisle. She's a Grammy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and guitarist. She has a new memoir called Broken Horses. We'll be right back after a break. This is Fresh Air. Your first really serious long-term partner, Kim, uh, was 17 years older than you. And you write a little bit about what you describe as your attraction to older androgynous women when you were younger. And you say at the time you told yourself it's because you were special and you were an old soul. How do you think about it now looking back? I think that I, um, was, I was looking for something. I was trying to stabilize from my childhood and uh, I needed to connect to um, some really soulful uh, older people in life and 
I did that romantically. I did that in my friendships. I did that in my work relationships. And I can see that now, that that was something that I was really consistently seeking out. And I'm glad I did. And Kim, the woman we're speaking of, um, she was and maybe still is a police officer. What did that expose you to? Just in terms of the kind of, I don't know, crime that that she had to deal with or or protests or or whatever. I mean, uh, police officers have different different lives than the rest of us. Yeah, that's such a good question, actually, that no one's ever asked me before. It really was a, a lifestyle to be with a police officer for nine years. And um, there was a lot we disagreed on. We clashed a lot because of it. And there was also a lot of times that I felt a really overwhelming sense of pride um, for her and, and fear for her at times. Um, but that's an intense place for a spouse or a partner to be in. Uh, is to be with a with a police officer because they just live differently than we do. I don't want to put a generalization on on police, but the level of adrenaline that they're dealing with day in and day out, it makes them react differently to things, and it makes for a an interesting style of communication that was really good for me to learn how to navigate at that age. Like more combustible style of communication. Definitely more combustible but also more repressed in a way. There's a lot of self-sacrifice that happens. Um, and Kim in particular was so critical of uh, policing or more importantly, the enforcement side of policing and was a big proponent of prevention style policing and worked in really intensely in reconciliation. So you had... She had programs that she started called, you know, the Donut Dialogues, where she would talk with and spend time with uh, street kids and addicts. And she had the If Project, where she went into prisons and helped people that are incarcerated to write short memoirs. And she is an exciting person and was a really interesting kind of police officer. And she took a lot of flack for that at work. But it's been neat seeing her on the right side of history all these years. Was she out on the police force? You mean out on patrol? No, just among other officers. Oh, out of the closet? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there ain't no closet for Kambuguki. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how, were you, how was she treated and how were you treated as her girlfriend? I didn't notice any kind of treatment um, of me, per se. Um, and I think that Kim has been an officer that's probably received a lot of accolades for, just for her community work and her outreach, but... Um, God, I could write a book about, about Kim sometimes. She's, she continues to be my best friend and she lives next door to me and Catherine and, and, uh, she's my kid's aunt Kim. She's really important to us. Yeah. I love that she lives on the compound too. You've, you've really created this incredible family of, of, you know, like blood family and family by marriage and people who become family because you're just that close to them. Yeah. My dad pointed out that out to me recently when I was just starting writing the book. I, I talked to him about that, and we were sitting at the table, and he doesn't say very much. He's a very quiet man. And he said, I noticed you start to do that after your, your baptism that didn't happen, that never was. He said, I noticed that you started to bring in people to your life to support you and to make you feel a part of something. 
And he's right. I, I did realize I started bringing in allies, people to help hold me up, help me walk through the world. I'm, I don't like being alone. Right. So you not only created your family of choice, you created your community of choice. Yeah. While holding on to my, you know, my OG, Carlisle Five. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, yeah. It's, so this thing where you say, like, you, you really don't like to be alone. Um, has, has it always been that way? Oh, yeah. Girl, I do not do alone. I can't. I can't do it for one day. If my wife's like, I got to go somewhere, you know, with the kids or we're going to go see so-and-so and and I got to be alone, I just start calling friends to see who will come and um, spend the night with me. And it's not because I'm afraid, but it's like, I almost feel, and I'm embarrassed to say it because I think that we, we look at people who can't be alone as deficient in some way. But to me, it almost feels like anything that happens when you're alone just didn't happen. Like food isn't great and jokes aren't funny and music isn't groundbreaking and nothing feels right to me alone. I think it's just the cloth I'm cut from. So I want to play another song, but this time it's not your band. It's a band that you're in with several other women, with Amanda Shires, uh, Maren Morris, Natalie Hemby. And it's called The High Women. It's a play on, on The Highwaymen. You've won music awards with this group. So the song I want to play is If She Ever Leaves Me. And it's, it's a great song, and uh, you sound great on it. But it's a, it's a song from the point of view of a lesbian who's singing to this guy, if she ever leaves me, it won't be for you. <laughs> so um, talk a little bit about the song before we hear it. And and what and what it means what it means in country music because this got a, a country music songwriting award. Um, so what does it mean in country music to have a song from a lesbian point of view? I think it's so important to have a country music song from a lesbian point of view. Actually, just from a queer point of view in general, because queer people love country music, and we're kind of in the closet about that. I think sometimes as a community, but we love country music. We just don't think that it's going to open its doors to us. And and when it does, it's it's wildly uh, satisfying. And so, the fact that if she ever leaves me has been so well received in in the genre has been um, kind of a kind of a, an exciting ride for me. And yeah, it's about a woman, in this case me, who is you know in a situation where she's watching some just some ignorant cowboy pick up on her girl, and she's basically telling the guy she's like, listen, pal, I hate to break it to you, but she might leave me. This might not work out, but if she ever does, it certainly ain't going to be for you, buddy. <laughs> that's what it's. That's what it's basically saying. I get such a kick out of singing that song. That's a great song. So this is Brandy Carlisle with the group The High Women. I see. You watch her from across the room Dancing her home in your mind It takes more than whiskey To make that flower bloom By the third drink You'll find out she's mine I've loved her in secret I've loved her out of love The sky has Has it always been blue? And my last forever, or 
That was Brandy Carlisle singing lead with the group The High Women, and the song is If She Ever Leaves Me. That's a, such a, <laughs> a great performance. You know, you, you write that um, during the pandemic, when you couldn't travel and couldn't perform, and you had to just, like, be in one spot pretty much, that you had to sit with your workaholism for the first time in your life. Uh, workaholism, workaholic is a very negative word. It sounds like a terrible habit, you know, um, that, that needs to be broken, that's very destructive. But being a hard worker is something that has very positive connotations. So why do you call yourself a workaholic, and what does that mean to you? Well, I think I make jokes about uh, how many times I've danced on the edge of really being a, a workaholic um, because I, that's what I do. I joke about serious things. Um, and it was getting to the point uh, around the time that the, the pandemic happened that it was, I was going to start seeing diminishing returns. You know, I was going to start veering into old patterns. I was going to start getting sick. I was going to start getting tired, getting hurt. And, you know, and then that brings in the subject of synthetic things like sleep aids and, and stuff that I've had problems with in the past. And um, the pandemic, it, it kind of forced me to sit and confront the things that were keeping me on that treadmill and making me work, making me want to work that hard. And where sort of ambition and avoidance intersect. So it was a real study in can I sit still and should I sit still more? And I think the answer to this is a resounding yes. I should sit still a lot more. And it's kind of a beautiful thing, but as I'm sitting here and I'm looking at 40 and I got my kids and I got my wife and I have some of the affirmation that I always wanted around my um, music and now I've written this book, I think I'm starting to really feel sort of solid and loved in my world. Like maybe I've finally, like maybe I've kind of finally found my place. Brandy Carlisle, it has been just such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. And I really enjoyed your new book as well, as well, of course, as your music. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. You're just amazing. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Brandy Carlyle's memoir is called Broken Horses. Terry Gross interviewed her last year when it was first published. Last week, Carlyle received seven Grammy nominations, including one for her album In These Silent Days. The awards will be announced in February. Coming up, John Powers reviews the most daring and timely film he's seen this year. This is Fresh Air. In the new movie E.O., the celebrated Polish director, Jerzy Skolomowski, tells the story of a donkey who wanders around Europe. Our critic at large, John Powers, says that E.O., which won a big prize at Cannes, is the most daring and timely film he's seen this year. We all have things that we don't like in movies. For some, it's horror. For others, bloodshed. For still others, nudity and sex. For my part... I've always found it excruciating to watch a film in which animals are shown being abused. I was filled with dread at the prospect of seeing the new film Eel, which is a riff on Robert Bresson's O Ezar Balthazar, a painful masterpiece in which a donkey is ground to dust by the world's inhumanity. 
but I knew I had to see it because it was made by one of my cinematic heroes, the Polish director Jerzy Skolomowski, who at age 84 is enjoying an astonishing late career resurgence. So I dragged myself off to a screening. And I'm glad I did. Far from being a cavalcade of misery, Eo is a thrillingly imaginative piece of filmmaking, a strange, haunting epic about a donkey that couldn't feel more of our moment. The donkey's name is Eo, and as the action begins, Eo is part of a small circus act with a loving young woman trainer. But when the circus goes broke, Eo is sold off to farmers. They don't treat it badly, but Eo remembers a happier earlier life and soon escapes, beginning a journey across modern Europe that carries Eo from forests and towns to villas and scrap heaps the size of small Alps. Now, normally a film like this would focus on the mean people who surround Eo and its wanderings, but the people here aren't all bad. Along the way, Eo encounters all manner of human beings, from the kind to the heartlessly brutal. Yet in a bold move, Skolomovsky doesn't give precedence to the human side of things. He stays centered on his donkey hero, giving Eo's existence an independence and worth equal to any of the humans we meet. We come to know the world from Eo's point of view. The film's alien beauty suggests an animal's perceptions. And we share its emotions. Skolomovsky constantly shows us Eo's dark eyes, which seem to take the measure of modern life. What they're witnessing and judging is our world, with its rampant despoiling of nature, and in particular, its treatment of animals, from the looming wind turbines that slaughter birds in flight, to hunters with laser-guided rifles gunning down wolves, to the industrial food system that endlessly drives animals into the meatpacking plant. We spend the film fearing what may befall ill. Now, a sense of the cosmos being out to get you has been present in Skolomovsky's work since the beginning. Not surprisingly, perhaps, as his father was executed by the Nazis, and he himself grew up in the repressiveness of communist Poland. A man of many gifts, he's also been a boxer, a poet, a painter, and an actor, even in Marvel movies. Skolomovsky enjoyed a terrific run from the 1960s to the 1980s, making great movies like Barrier, Deep End, and Moonlighting. Then in his mid-forties, he seemed to go cinematically fallow. What nobody could have guessed was that in his eighth decade, he'd catch fire again, turning out films like Essential Killing and Eleven Minutes that crackle with young punk audacity. This panache is on display everywhere in EO, with its onrushing camera, color filters, aggressive music, and utter confidence about throwing viewers into the donkey world, where there's more poetry than plot, and nobody explains what's going on. The film is so brash, freewheeling, and inventive that if I didn't know Skolomovsky had made it, I'd have assumed it was the work of a brilliant 25-year-old, discovering what they and the movies can do. Part of what makes Eo feel so alive is that it speaks to today's huge ongoing shift in consciousness about animals and our increasing awareness that we treat them horribly. This is a film filled with compassion for the ill-treated creatures of this world, and electric with anger at those who, through malice or thoughtlessness, perpetuate cruelty toward the powerless. Jean-Luc Godard famously said that Bresson's donkey film gave you the world in an hour and a half. You can say the same of Skolomovsky's revamped version, which might be another way of telling you that this is a movie that may leave you in tears. John Powers reviewed the new film E.O.
On the next Fresh Air, Terry Gross talks with James Gray about his new movie Armageddon Time. Set in 1980, it's based on his own childhood as the grandchild of Jewish immigrants from Ukraine when he was 11 and living in Queens, New York. Gray's other films include The Yards, Two Lovers, The Lost City of Z, and Ad Astra. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. Roberta Shurrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Coolidge.